You're listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Battling cancer once would be enough for most of us, but our guest today has had to do it nine different times over the last 44 years. Breast cancer, ovarian cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and leukemia, to name a few. Her immune system is shot, and the only thing saving her life is cannabis, cannabinoid replacement. And joining us from Iowa to tell her story is Lanice Wedewer, who is also a Ph.D. Lenise, thank you very much for doing this. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Now, your life changed forever when you were 14 years old. Take us through that story. Yeah, it, it really did. Um, I was actually a very prized um, student. I was not only valedictorian material, but I also was a child prodigy. So what they did actually was fairly sad. Um, When I was 13 years old, I received two tainted vaccines. One was a tainted rubella, which comes from the MMR, and it was tainted with the Epstein-Barr virus, and it rewrote my DNA and left behind what was known as GPR-183, which is known also as the vaccine-induced Epstein-Barr gene. So they actually induced an entire Epstein-Barr virus gene into my gene pool. And then with the second vaccine that was tainted, it was a tainted polio. And the tainted polio had what was known as the SV40 virus. And most people already realize that's an African green monkey virus that causes cancer. So I, I kind of was doomed from the time they gave me that vaccine because what it did was it causes my body to recreate cancer sort of at will. Um, and that's why I battled cancer nine times. What was the purpose of giving you the, those vaccines? You know, looking back over 44 years, and I know this sort sort of sounds like conspiracy, but I kind of wonder if they weren't trying to flush out Jewish blood. I say that because the vaccines or the cancers that I got um, was actually created way back when. Um, I could tell you that whole sordid story another time, but... um, So I actually know who created my vaccines and stuff that way. But I think it was with the intent to find Jewish blood because it was actually angled towards Jewish blood. And because I'm sort of um, hybrid Jewish blood, I contracted it really quickly. Within one year, by the time I was 14 years old, my poor little body was filled with cancer. I had breast cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, it was already a partial ovary. Um, my entire spleen, when um, they opened me up, was ready to explode um, right after they got it out. It did. 
Um, I actually died on the operating table for four and a half minutes because of it. So the unique part about my story, I believe, is that after they removed my spleen, shortly thereafter went my tonsils and adenoids. You know, these are the places where our CB1 originates and feeds our body. You know, so I've had to live almost my entire life with no CB2, excuse me, CB2 is our immune system. And with that said, that meant my body had virtually no immune system. And so cannabinoid replacement, by the time I was 17, 18 years old, it literally saved my life. And it was because of that constant daily replacement that gave me or my body a sort of immune system to literally fight this with. Not only the fact that they already knew before these studies that cannabis could cure cancer because of the Israel studies. And well, let's talk about practice medicine from our last medical system where they cured over 800 different things. So that's truly where our studies came from, was from that historical knowledge. So when you had all these cancers as a teenager and you went through life, what sort of treatment did you undergo? Oh boy, it depends on which battle, which dance. I call them a dance. I, I guess I don't always call it a battle with cancer because I always feel like I'm dancing with the beef and I know I'm going to win because I have cannabis on my side. So I don't fear it. And I know that's really crazy to say. And a lot of people get kind of, you know, freaked out when I say that. But if they only understood that cannabis had saved my life eight times out of nine battles, then they'd probably understand the treatments. Oh, wow. You would just be amazed. Um, My very first battle, it was radiation alone. That did not work. And they realized it actually more or less bioweaponized me. People around me were getting sick with Epstein-Barr virus-type diseases, Um, uh, mono, um, the ninth disease, if you've ever heard of that. It's like a rosella. Um, I could go on and on and on. It was kind of actually freaky. But I didn't realize that at that time, that that cancer, that bioweaponized portion of my cancer was what was causing that around me. And it wasn't until after I'd been in the cannabis studies for three separate studies that I realized that while I was on this stuff, nobody around me was getting sick either. And I found that really, really interesting because they, oh, doctors always claim that when you get cancer, your body starts producing nagalase. And what I found over my 44 years and experiences with nine battles with cancer is that's actually not true. The nagalase is there before the cancer. The nagalase is actually coming from your vaccines, if you don't if you don't realize that. And this nagalase it literally shuts down portions of your body and certain um, G proteins so that your body can't even recognize that you have cancer. And they actually attach, and this is going to be creepy, and you might not have heard about that. But soon I'll be releasing an abstract that I've been kind of working on um, that proves it. That they're actually taking 
synthetic, say, bovine parts, and they're attaching it to your upper cannabinoid receptor. So what happens when they do that, it like flips a switch. You know, our cannabinoid receptors in our body are very, very important. They regulate absolutely everything that your body does. So for them to work properly is pretty important. So when they put this um, synthetic part on, which they already admit in the abstract that they don't know what that's going to create or what it could cause, which right there to me is a no no or don't do it, um, it actually can affect every that one cannabinoid receptor, just one, and I've already proven two just from that abstract that they did this to. Every biological, every molecular, every cellular process that is related with that one cannabinoid receptor is going to be affected. It's going to switch some things off. It's going to unbalance others. And what that's going to do is any disease that has an affinity for any of those things are now a possibility for your body. Because it's a part of who you are. It's a part of your makeup. You know, Lenise, uh, I've always thought that 100 years from now, people are going to look back at the medical profession today in the 20th century and the 21st century, particularly the early part of this uh, 21st century. They're going to look back and say how bloody barbaric people in the medical profession was. Because some of the things that doctors are offering is mind-boggling. We did an interview the other day with a woman whose daughter had Crohn's disease, and they wanted to put her on leukemia. But here's the thing. Or chemo. Chemo, pardon me, had uh, wanted to put her on chemo. And here's the thing. She had a, a skin tag the size of a, a half, dollar. half dollar, and the doctor wanted to use chemo to get rid of it. She's nine, nine years old. And they said that uh, she would have to be on this chemotherapy for the rest of her life. Wow. That is crazy. It'll kill her because, you know, that stuff's made out of poison. It kind of goes into a, a series that I just started a couple of days ago on my Facebook where I'm talking about all the woes of our policies and how it's harming us with, with cannabis. And one of the things I talk about is exactly the Hippocratic oath. And how it states in there that we are not, you know, we take an oath not to give poison um, to our, our our patient. And it states in there, nor will we suggest this as a course. Yet on a daily basis, oncologists are suggesting chemo, which is nothing more than um, a clinical pharmaceutical poison. I mean, let's face it, one of the chemos is made out of the same mustard seed that they used in the Vietnam War. Lenise, in the in the various cancers you've had, were they all new cancers, or were some of them recurring cancers? Some of them are recurring cancers. Again, my body uh, reproduces it sort of at will. And another misconception in uh, medicine is that they always tell you that that could be an environmental factor. Well, when you think of environmental, you think of the world around you, like your air, your water, your food which true does have carcinogens in it. However, in many cases, they're talking about the environment within you, and not many doctors will deny the fact that almost all Americans have SV40 and GPR-183 at this point, so um, or Epstein-Barr virus. So, and that's, you know, pretty much a given. And so ask your doctor, just go in one time and ask your doctor, say, well, I might want to be tested for Epstein-Barr virus, and he'll tell you, 
and don't worry about it, most of the United States has it. That's kind of creepy. When you realize most of your childhood diseases and most of your adult diseases have something to do with these viruses from the vaccines. So, pretty scary. Did you ever undergo chemotherapy? Absolutely. That's what actually was part of the initial three studies I was in. I was in many studies over my years, from cam studies to chemo to cannabis. And I think a lot of the times when they were doing the chemo studies that I was in, they were masking it to cover up the fact that they were also doing cannabis studies. My first battle was radiation alone, and it did not work. It basically weaponized my cancer and made it worse. Um, Battle two was when they started getting me into the studies. So two, three, and four, I was in the studies, and they were also chemo. Now, when you look at a, a, a study, a clinical study or a trial, you have to realize that there are um, guidelines to how that's done. You must have, say, for instance, three different um, pathways and one must be a placebo. But when you look at our studies, then you would have to understand that the chemo couldn't have been what the study was about. It had to have been the cannabis. Let me explain. Because, yes, each one of us kids, and there was the original five of the original 11 were teenagers. I was the youngest of the five teenagers. But we all had different cancers, and we were all on different chemos. Well, that can tell you right there that that was not the study parameter because they would have had to have all been on the same chemo. I was on um, uh, trials for Melophiland, Lucran, Alcoran, you name it. I, I was in those studies, the opening studies for those things back in the 70s. And that's exactly when they were doing the cannabis studies at the exact very time. We can pretty much determine by clinical trial standards that the chemo was not actually a part of the study. And I was highly allergic to every chemo out there. However, they always kept me on the cannabis and I would cure. So everybody pretty much understood that if I couldn't keep down more than one to four pills, that it surely wasn't the chemo that was curing me. So pretty much every doctor, even yet today, will tell me, don't stop taking the cannabis. It's all over my medical records. I've actually made a little book and just tabbed every paper that says cannabis on it because so many people find that rare because they try to hide that in medical records. So, yes, I was on that. But then when you look at the study parameters of those initial three studies I just told you about, the Melophilan, Lucaran, and Alcaran, um, those studies, they actually did have three parameters, though, for the cannabis. Now, this is where your studies starting to come together. It's, it's got your parameters you're looking for, your clinical trial. And in that, number one was what I chose which was the ability to smoke it, to inhale it. Um, when It's kind of weird how I chose that. I, I died on an operating table when I was 14, and God told me that it would be a, a natural herb of his, that it would actually cure me. And so not thinking that this cannabis at the age of 17 was that, I'm still thinking, well, but God said natural, so better stick with that. The second option was we had the ability to um, grind it down and put it as shake over salads with like oil. That did not work. Um, the kid that was on that particular protocol, he died after about four weeks. 
Um, and then there was the third group, which was the Marinol kids. In all three studies, all the Marinol kids died. They died within weeks of the studies opening. In the first study, they got really nervous after the Marinol kids were, di- you know, they died. The other child that was doing the um, shake over the salads wasn't doing very good. So they got a little nervous, and that's when they started adding the oil um, to the inhale patients, seeing if that would be the, the top or what would tip them over the scale. And it actually was what did it. And, you know, and so they used all of these old medical books to get these different recipes and stuff. So the recipe that I actually show online is the same basic recipe they gave my father to make my oil lab. And so you're probably wondering, but then how did we get it? Were we IND? Because you hear so much about the governmental IND program. No, we were not IND. We were basically, I'm assuming, before IND and or they decided IND was not enough for these particular studies with us being so critically ill. I'm not sure what that program is. It's a governmental program where you hear about the canisters with the 200 pre-rolled cigarettes, and they've got the crushed seeds and stems in it. Ours was not that. Ours was actually female, unfertilized. There was no stems, no seeds. It did still come in a canister, but they were not pre-rolled. Oh, that was the program that uh, was given to the fellow who had glaucoma and a number of others, correct? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And there is two IND patients here in Iowa, George and Barb. There's a possibility that we may have lost Barb this year. I'm hoping not, but those both are IND. I am the only living survivor from those three studies. So I'm the only federal patient not IND that is actually legal to cross state lines to traffic cannabis back if needed for my own treatment. So you've been on cannabis for how long then? Since I was 17 years old, almost 40 some years. Yeah, and it's what's kept me alive and it's what's cured every one of my battles with cancer because you cannot claim that I was cured in my first battle. If so, I wouldn't have been in my next battle so soon thereafter. Is there always a fear in the back of your mind that the cancer will return? No, it's an actually, it's a fact, and I know it, and I've known it since I was a kid. I, they told me I would ultimately die by the age of 25, but there's no way that my body in such a condition could live. So they still consider me a medical miracle. And the miracle is simply cannabis, to be honest. Um, that And the fact that, you know, I watch my P's and Q's. When a doctor tells you it requires 10 hours, you know, to cure cancer when you're this bad, yeah, they mean it, and it's true. You know, your body needs the proper rest for the cannabis to work, you know, so make sure you're getting your P's and Q's and that you're, you know, trying to eat properly. If you make a cheat here or there, it's not that big of a deal. Cannabis is going to mop it up. But, you know, don't cheat all the time, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, And good spirits has a lot to do with it. You know, um, and a good support team. But your your cure, you already have that cannabis. I can't say that enough. Lenise, how do you, know? you how do you cope with your condition mentally? Um, there's really not too much to um, deal with when I know the fact that I'm I'm healing. 
you know, um, you have to understand in this particular battle, you might find interesting. Um, battle nine, um, it was breast cancer, started out as breast cancer. I went into traditional treatment with the cannabis. They ended up, because of the stress, creating 11 new locations. And I kept telling them over the last few years that I believe that the morphine and the Faslodax was spreading the cancer. The doctor would not listen to that. She just would not hear of it. And then come to find out um, last uh, fall, they gave me six months to live saying that um, the cancer had spread. Like I had been trying to tell them that it was doing this. So I got mad and totally invoked my grandfather dry and I had them do radiation. I know you're thinking that that's pretty crazy after what I just said about my first battle. But what I had realized this time is as long as I was on cannabis, since it wouldn't allow me to be bioweaponized the last so many battles, it certainly wasn't going to allow me to be bioweaponized by the radiation either, as long as I took it directly after the treatments. So that's what I did. How much oil do you do in a day? Um, I actually take five doses. I know most people only take four. And in the beginning of the study, that was all we took was the four doses. But because I've been on it for so many years, I'm sure you can understand that a fifth dose in the middle of the night is pretty important for me Um, because of my body becoming so accustomed to having it in there. And yes, Corey, I'll probably already tell you the next question you're going to ask, but do you do the four days down? Yes, I do. I do reset my cannabinoids at least once a year. Explain what. Now, you, what explain to listeners what you mean by that. Okay. Well, the doctors, you you might find some of the things that the doctors said in the original study fairly um, important, but also kind of hilarious the way they worded it. Um, one was they wanted to ensure that since we were on inhalation and also ingesting. They wanted to ensure we had a head rush at least once or twice a day. They wanted us to smoke a good-sized dealer's joint. He pulled out his index finger, and he goes, I mean that size. And I can laugh at that because I have never been able to smoke a joint that big in my entire life. (laughs) Just get through it. It's big. But funny. I thought you guys would laugh because that really is the truth. No, no, I'm in the same boat as you are. They wanted us to have a head rush, I found very important, is because they said that was the body's way of telling you that your cannabinoids are completely topped off. At that point, you are free to stop because then that's why they wanted us to make sure and have a head rush at least once or twice a day, preferably in the a.m. and p.m. to ensure that at least twice a day our body was completely topped off with cannabinoids. So important to understand that that's why they want you to take that much. So don't fear that much, ah, I guess, you know, is was what they were trying to explain to us. And then you asked me another question. What was it? God, forgive me. Corey, I believe it was you. I think she asked, uh, how much do you take a day? Yes. Okay. So they wanted us to take at least four doses a day. And, and basically because... It's the exact same recipe from those books. It was basically stated as about the size of a grain of rice because that's the way it's listed in the medical books. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really probably figure out how to word it better. Today we've done that. Uh, the gram a day. You get it, Corey. 
But yeah. it's kind of one of those laughing things that you got to laugh about. So they were very adamant about this, though, that they wanted to ensure that nothing was stopping you from getting your dose, that nothing was stopping you from getting enough and popping that off. To them, that was the most important part of that portion of the study. The current battle that you're going through with cancer um, or dance, it, what, what kind of cancer is that? Um, well, it started out as breast cancer. <laughs> my, my old friend that keeps wanting to come back. It is spread back um, because of the metastasized, um, metastasized um, cancer because they spread it with the morphine and the mm-hmm. vasodac. So is this- it uh, activated the Hodgkin's. I now have le- had leukemia, which I'd never, ever had before. Um, I now had a cyst on my left adrenal in my kidney. It was almost taking up over a little more than half of my kidney. Um, I had some, you know, various spots on my neck. Um, and, and I could go on. My other breast was now affected. Um, I was getting these little surgeons in my stomach where it felt like needles were literally trying to poke through my gut. So they actually had spread it to 11 different locations in this particular battle. Is this, so is, it, sorry to interrupt, is this uh, breast cancer uh, hormone driven, estrogen positive or progesterone positive or what? If you look at my um, Facebook, it's actually um, uh, ductal sarcoma. And it's. Uh, Oh, I'm not going to get this right. I know I'm not. It's the one negative, uh, the H-E-R is negative, the other is positive. Okay, so I, I'm asking you that because, you know, I'm forever trying to find the answer to hormone-driven breast cancer. So can I ask you what ratio you do of THC to CBD in treating this particular cancer? Yes, you may. Um, actually, the THC is always kept pretty fairly high. Um, I don't like to ever use a uh, THC strain less than 22%. And I like to have different oils. I don't like to have any, just one strain, just one oil hanging around. I never want my cancer to learn a strain. If I can tell you anything, that's the most important key I can give you. Keep mixing it up, keep mixing it up, keep mixing it up. Every mm-hmm. couple of days, the other oil a few days later, go back to the other oil, whatever that takes for you, but keep switching it up. Yeah, cover all your bases that way. For critical times, when, like, um, for instance, last fall, um, when I went into the hospital, to me, that's a, a mob boss day. That's one of those 54% THCs. Let me explain why I say that. Okay, so I went to the hospital last fall. They told me I had six months left to live, that they basically had killed me. I was angry. I made them actually um, do a frontal assault on the breast cancer on the left breast, which is the biggest one. It was a 4.8 by that point, thanks to them. Still angry about that. And um, by that point, um, I went into the hospital. Instead of giving me two shots in a row at a two-week increment, which is what the guidelines state, they decided they were going to do a third one, which is totally against the FASODEX guidelines. And I ended up in the hospital because um, my body was showing signs of a stroke, of a heart attack. I was vomiting blood. I had blood coming out of my urine, out of my bowels. Uh, this little girl was pretty sick. So I go into the hospital because I'm passing out. My kids said, that's it. You're going in. I'm kind of, you know, 
don't like hospitals very much, and I'm sure you can understand why. Had a lot of really nasty tests in those things that I don't even care to remember. So I'm in there, and I passed out, and the attendant literally stuck his thumb into the middle of my huge breast cancer and severed into a vein. And so now I'm gushing blood from my breast at the same time, and that's why we had them do the radiation therapy was because now they needed to cauterize my breast from this mistake from the attendant because he scooped out one inch of cancer out of the middle of my and severing a vein with his finger now. So I'm now getting put into the hospital overnight. I'm telling them I cannot stay unless they're allowing me, you know, like the U of I does, to bring in my medicine. Um, So they did agree as long as it was just edibles, not unlike the U of I, I can actually inhale there as well. Um, but they would not allow the inhale. And I was satisfied as long as I got the edibles, I was pretty positive that I would live through the night. Everybody was pretty positive I would die before morning. And they were sort of upset that they felt I was being blasé about the criticalness of my condition at the moment. And they actually said that I literally had scared the death out of a couple of actors saying, don't think about it, don't worry about it, just get me my edibles. Because they're worried about all the blood loss. They're worried about the fact that I've got high-bred blood, so they have to man-make my blood. They don't have time to make it to save my life. They can't just give me any blood because of my Jewish um, unsplintered blood. So with that being said, they have to man-make it because my blood has chemicals in it. Your guys's does not. And if I take your blood, it would automatically kill me. So all they could do basically was keep me from vomiting. I said, that's all you need to do. And they're like looking at me like I'm absolutely nuts at this point. And so I'm up in my um, my room and they've already taken the blood tests and the other tests that they're going to take. And they're settling me in and telling me that they're going to take these tests every couple hours to monitor how the cannabis is affecting this heart attack, this stroke, and how it's rebuilding the blood because I'm telling them, that, look, I'm not worried about the leukemia right now. I get it's a problem, but I'm telling you that this cannabis is going to mop it up. Just watch the blood test, and you're going to see what I'm saying is true. And that's what they did, and that's what they found. And now every two hours, I've got all these doctors flying into my room wanting to know how I knew that this was going to happen. And, and, and you kind of probably laugh because at first I sang to them, And I I basically said, because the Bible tells me so. And they're like, what? (laughs) And I said, don't you, you know, do you read your Bible? Do you remember the story about the leper and how it cleaned the leper's blood of a blood-borne disease, which leukemia is a blood-borne disease? Hello? Your doctor should know this. And I said, so if we know that it could clean the leper's blood, then why should I worry about it cleaning my blood or rebuilding my blood? Especially when, if you had read my files and you had actually paid attention and listened to what the heart professor of the U of I, Dr. Donald Brown, explained in my records, is that while being on treatment for my cancer, the cannabis oil has been mopping up my valvular heart disease. That's what I like, a feisty lady. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been helping your heart disease. Awesome. It was curing my valvular heart disease over the last three years. So now instead of having severe and stenosis and insufficiency, it's to the point of mild where they're not even having to do ultrasounds anymore. Have you ever heard of um, valvular heart disease reversing by anything? No. And that case just proved that cannabis 
could do that. So and I so I'm explaining this to the doctors like, did you read that? Because if you had read that, you should have had at least a similar clue that this could be possible. So with that said, if you look at the facts and you look at the practiced medicine from our last medical system, you would see that it actually was utilized to clean the bud and rebuild it. They even used it for heart patients. Lenise, over the last 44 years, what has been, and given the horrific uh, health issues you've gone through, what has been the hardest part for you? Access. Accessing it. Even though I'm legal, it's not my state is still not legal. Um, so access is, is my hardest thing because I have to get it brought in all the time because we don't have dispensaries here. And even though everybody goes, but you, you have this state and you have these laws and you have this CBD, I'm a full oil girl. I was raised on full oil. That's what's cured me. I like it. So, um, I don't necessarily try to suggest a CBD only oil. And that's what our laws are. But if you understand how bunk our laws are, we don't even have access, even though we've had a CBD law for three years. We don't even have a dispensary or access. So it's a law without access. So what good is it? Lenise, you've got a you've got a just a remarkable story and uh, I think uh, it really resonates with people. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? Yeah, I'd like to talk uh, just a little bit about why, um, because of the last statement I made, why I'm suing the state of Iowa and federal government for the federal paragraph that they put in there in retaliation for the activists helping. They took out every disease that any activist was fighting for, and they added a federal paragraph that was totally illegal with my grandfathered rights. With that said, I have um, many law firms working on my case. And I, it's more important to me, not money, but and, and part of my deal is is that if they're willing to do the right thing, which is make this legal for everyone, and I mean legal with inhale rights because that was in our last medical system, I mean with grow rights for those who cannot afford to go out and buy it. If they're willing to do that, I don't care about the money. They can keep most of it. However, they are going to pay me for what they did to me. So um, with that said, they can keep two-thirds to, you know, three-fourths of the money as far as I'm concerned. And, and just so you know, my Iowa case alone is going to be worth between 80 to $160 million. So it should give them a good incentive to legalize it. Why are we putting kids on psychotropic drugs that can cause them to commit suicide when we have cannabis available and has been generally recognized as safe for hundreds of years? And still meets that criteria. That said, in my lawsuit, that is one of the things I am suing about. I am suing about broken study promises. The study promise they made to us is that if it worked, I'm living proof, is that they would make it available to more people. However, they sealed up the study and locked it up. It was not made available to other people. And that really makes me mad because that means that all of those kids that died in those studies, those people who risked their life, so that this one day could be legal, as it is in many states today. Those kids risked their life. Many of them died. My son was murdered. He was murdered so that this could be. Those lives have meaning. Every activist who died 
making this become possible had meaning. So with that said, I will force them if I have to, to keep that study promise because that is a legal contract. If you don't understand all studies, you sign a legal contract to be in a study that is between the patient, the hospital or entity, your state and your federal government. If those study laws are not kept and those promises, you have the right to sue per the state and federal government must fund your lawyers. That doesn't even come out of your settlement. And they made that very clear to us while we were in those studies to understand those study laws. Lenise, so it was a, sorry, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for everything, and thank you guys for doing this. I appreciate it. It was nice talking to you guys. Thank you, Lenise. Have a good day, guys. Yeah. You too. You too. And that's another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.